and uh, we're up today to Numbers chapter 5. We won't read the whole uh, 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 chapter this morning, but we will read uh, most of it. And uh, we're going to look at this in three sections because it comes to us about three different kinds of issues that need to be uh, uh, dealt with. And so let me say this to you before, uh, before I go any further about, about this text. This text will offend the daylights out of you. It's so offensive. It's so offensive. I mean, really. Uh, and it is, we're unprepared to hear these kinds of things, frankly. Uh, and, and, and as such, because we're unprepared to hear such things, that's why it's so important for us to hear it uh, and to come to grips with this. So let me, I just wanted to warn you about that ahead of time. Sometimes I worry that I might offend you a little bit when, uh, when I preach, but uh, I don't have to worry about that today because God's going to do it for me. <laughs> okay? Uh, that's awesome. Some of you are ready to leave. We just locked the doors. So Numbers chapter 5, um, uh, This. Uh, let me read uh, the first four verses, and then uh, we'll uh, talk about that, and then we'll read verses 5 through 10. And then we'll talk about that, and then we'll uh, read part of the the last section. But let me uh, begin this morning by reading uh, Numbers uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So, uh, Becky, go ahead and put my notes up there. So uh, why in the world, in the middle of all these instructions, right, that we've looked at over the first four chapters about the arrangement of the camp, the arrangement of the tabernacle, who's going to carry the parts of the tabernacle, suddenly we break off here and now we have this text and these first uh, four verses are dealing with people who are unclean. Why is that? Why, why, would, why, why would we do that? Because uh, it just seems so, uh, so crazy to us to do that. Like, why would, in the middle of all these instructions about the arrangement of the camp and the arrangement of the march, would the Lord include these instructions? Well, because here's the thing. Uh, when, when God gathers his people together and he gets them ready to go, the, the three things that we're going to look at in this chapter today are things that happen to people. And that things that we live with, right? And so we, we, we need to, we need to look at that very clearly and, and very, uh, directly today. But before we even get to that, and as we're going to read this stuff, and it's going to seem so harsh and so, um, especially to people who like, like participation trophies, right? I mean, you don't put anybody outside the camp in a culture where everybody gets a trophy, right? We just, <laughs> we just don't do that. Um, we, we, we laugh about that. My, my kids and I laugh about that all the time because I talk to them about being a, a nine-year-old and going out for Little League Baseball and getting cut. And they're like, oh, Dad, do you have to go to the doctor? I'm like, no, no, no. 
I wasn't good enough to make the team. They're like, what? Yeah, that's offensive. They should do away with that. Well, I'm sure they have. (laughs) Right? So here's the thing you have to put this stuff into context with right off the bat, right? So the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, however forbidding it may appear to us today, shows that the people of God already stand in grace even before the sacrifices are offered. God has already told them, you are my people. So all of this stuff that we're going to look at today, all of these things have to be placed in that context First and foremost, these are the people of God. He has redeemed them. Remember, just 14 months before this, they were slaves. Now they have been redeemed, and he is talking to them about how to live their lives and, the, and, and, and how to, to uh, be in relationship with him and how to be in relationship with one another. And that's why uh, he speaks to them in the way in which he does. So this first thing that we see is this issue of what's unclean and unclean. Next slide, please, Becky. So why aren't the people of God cleaning up the things they will need for the march? Why doesn't he say, listen, you guys need to get yourselves together because we're going to have to fight these battles and we're going to have to do this stuff. So get your swords clean, get your spears cleaned, you know, get your shields cleaned up, get all this stuff ready to go. But what he says to them instead of that is you need to work on yourself. We need to deal with the thing that is most deadly among you. And so, so what we have to deal with is, is your uncleanness, as we see in this first section. In the next section, we'll see how you deal with when you uh, uh, steal, lie, and cheat with one another. And the last one is what to do with unfaithfulness. So that's what we're going to get at today. So, so first of all, uh, we're going to talk about this issue of uncleanness. And we read this. And, and frankly, these first four verses are simply a summary of five chapters in Leviticus. And listen, you want to get offended. This is not offensive. Read Leviticus 11 through 15. Holy cow. Holy cow. Wow. Just wow. All the things that get you excluded from the people of God. Amazing. Amazing. Because here's the way we think about this. The way we think about it is, if you do something bad, that will probably exclude you. But as we'll see, the things that are talked about in this text are things at, at worst are unintentional. And in fact, some of the things that in this text that make you unclean are good things that you should do. This should be a little disconcerting to us. But you already know that you do this. Yesterday we had a family gathering, and when we, I uh, saw my daughter when we arrived at the place where we were going to have the gathering, I went up to hug her, and she croaked at me because I think I got bronchitis. And, you know, Marty asked her, like, well, how do you know you got bronchitis? She's like, it's going around. Well, uh, so I don't want to touch her. She's unclean. Because if I touch her, I'll get her uncleanness. Right? 
Years ago, we visited in the hospital, the elders and I, a man who was sick, and we weren't sure why he was sick or what was wrong with him. Uh, and I, I placed my hand on his forehead when we prayed with him, and when we got done, one of the elders said to me, I can't believe you touched him. And he's looking at my hand that I touched him with. And so I started moving closer to him with <laughs> No, no. I was tempted to do that. I was tempted to chase him around the room with my hand, but, uh, right? So, so we read this and we, we have different kind of categories of what makes clean and unclean, right? So, so we, we hear this and we think, well, this, this, this seems, uh, patently, uh, uh, unfair, right? That this unintentional, uh, clean, clean, uncleanness might lead us to expulsion from camp. But see, what? here's what you, however contrary to how you may feel about this or whether this seems like a, a fair thing or not, we, the, the, what happens to us is, is that we don't understand that sin and death hang over us and mark us, right? So, so the fact is that what we, we tend to think about sin as simply something that we do or maybe something we think or maybe something we say. I've said this a million times, and it bears repeating again because we it's hard for us to believe this, right? Sin is, is, is certainly behavior, but it is the state in which we live. Death is the state in which we live here and now. We live... Among the dying. And so God is the God, the living God. And so as such, all of these things that make us unclean are things that, that point to and make us aware of the fact that, that death is very much a part of and the result of sin. It is around us. It is in us. It is a part of us. And so the, the fact is this the setting outside of the camp is one of these things where we think, well, that just seems so exclusionary. Next slide, please, Becky. But the problem about that is um, what, what you have to see is that if you look at Leviticus 11 through uh, 15, we don't have time to do that this morning. Every one of you, all of us, all of us, all, every single one is at some point or another, Unclean. At some point or another, you're going to be out, outside the camp. Okay, all of us. So, so we read this and we think, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a hard thing for us to to kind of get our brain around. And and if you if you read Leviticus 11 through 15 carefully, this little brief summary here in Numbers doesn't do it justice because the disruption to the life of the community and the the, the, the disruption to the life of the camp and the disruption to the life of of the individual that this happens to is stunning. It is just simply stunning. But the fact of the matter is this. What we have to see is that you and I live in and among a people that are unclean because we're unclean. And it is something that is true of every single one of us. Now, you know, Paul says and asks the great question in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And, and all of that stuff that he talks about in that chapter, who will deliver me from this body of death, is not so much behavior, but it is the things that motivate him, the things that are internal to him, the things that are going on with him. That, that stuff is, is, is very real and very profound for him. Now, let me just address what I know all of you think. Those of you New Testament scholars who um, know that uh, how Jesus dealt with this, because uh, this seems unfair, and don't I, I don't I seem to remember that Jesus said all of these laws were dumb, and he did away with them, right? Didn't Jesus show up and say, "Hey, you know, God was having a bad day. People were making him mad. He didn't like it." And so he listed all the people that he didn't like, and he said, put them outside the camp. You're in a permanent timeout, right? And then what parents do when they get frustrated? Get in timeout, right? And Jesus came and said, you know what? He was upset. He's cooled off. Everything's cool. Ignore all that. So Jesus goes around, and, and he makes it seem like it's okay. That's the way you think about it. Right? I don't have to pay any attention to that. Well, Jesus would have a very big argument with you about this. Very big. Because what we read, like for instance in uh, Luke uh, chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, where in, in one case Jesus is dealing, as he's going through town, a woman who has a hemorrhage who's had it for years, who's been excluded from the community as a result of that. What happens? She slips up behind him and she touches him. She takes a, she takes a, a, um, a, a real risk in doing that. It is a profound thing. And just by reaching out and touching him, what happens to her? Jesus turns around and says, you know those laws about people having hemorrhages and them being uh, unclean? I just did away with them. You're fine. Right? That's what he did. No. Yield her. Or the lepers that come to Jesus. And he touches them. And he heals them. Did he say to them, ignore all those laws. Your leprosy is not a big deal. Just go on about your business. No, he touches them and he heals them. And then what does he tell them to do? Go show yourself to the priest. Go, go, go show them that something has happened, that God has intervened on your behalf, and, and that which made you unclean has now been done away with. So before we just kind of blow these things off and we just kind of act like these, these things don't matter, the fact is we have to come to grips with the fact that, that there is something in every single one of us, and even on our best day, for instance, let's say... You are a loving child and your parent dies and you have to touch them. You want to touch them because you love them. By doing so, you have made yourself unclean and now you must be placed outside the camp. Something has to happen to reverse the effect of the curse and the death and death upon us so that we can be permanently cleansed and have this place. You see, it is, it is, 
It's so hard for us to, to come to grips with that because the way we think about uncleanness is, is that we are the arbiters of unclean and we are the ones who determine who are the people that should be outside the camp and who are the people that should be inside the camp and what it is that puts you outside the camp and what it is that puts you inside the camp. And Jesus blows through all of those categories. We'll come back to this. Verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt. Now, talk about a comprehensive list. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they shall bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations, and whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So, so we read here now, now we've got those kinds of things that, uh, that we do to one another. You know, when we lie, cheat, and steal. When we defraud one another, when we mislead one another, and we uh, put ourselves in, in those sorts of situations, when, when we gossip about one another, when we, when we steal one another's reputations and, and all, of, all of those kinds of things. So what does he say here? Well, this should sound very familiar to us. When someone sins against someone else, what do we do? Well, the first thing you do is you confess it. And where appropriate and where it can be done, some sort of restitution must be made. But over all of this, there must be atonement. As he says here, the ram of atonement. There must be some sort of death, some sort of payment to make atonement for the sin. Now, this is a, this is a pretty pr- profound thing for us. Now, we just read this passage from, Zac- uh, from uh, uh, the New Testament about Zacchaeus. And and we read this story about Zacchaeus, and it's a sweet story. It's such a sweet story. Because we look at Zacchaeus, and he's very non-threatening, because he's a wee little man. And it seems so cute that this wee little man wants to see Jesus, and he runs outside. He's like a hobbit, right? We we think he's just this sweet, cute little guy, and he runs out there, and he gets up in the tree. And everybody's like, oh, he's so non-threatening. He's so sweet. Well, if that's the case, why did it tick everybody off? Because he's an oppressor. Yeah. He's an oppressor. He's the tax man. And he's an evil unscrupulous, stealing oppressor. He uses the power of the government to oppress the people. And Jesus goes to his house. Now, 
Jesus certainly identified. And you may say, well, he was marginalized because the people in the village were unkind to him. (laughs) Well, they could be unkind to him all he wants, and he's still going to steal from them. He's still going to threaten to put them in jail if they don't pay their taxes. I must come to your house today, Zacchaeus. I must come to your house. No wonder they killed Jesus. Why did it take them three years? They should have done away with him much sooner. He's so offensive. So Zacchaeus says, if I've stolen, I restore it multiple of times. And, and I want to make this right. I want to, I want to make restitution. I, I, I've done it and I am going to, I'm going to make this right. Jesus came to his house and it changed everything about him. Before Jesus came to his house, you wouldn't have let him in your church. So we read in 1 John 1, 9, what, what the scriptures tell us, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And as the Old Testament recognizes there that we, we sin against one another all the time. And there's all sorts of ways in which we do this and all sorts of horrible things uh, that we do to one another. And yet what he says there is, is that we can confess our sins and where appropriate, we should not only confess our sins, but we should make restitution for those things that we have done because it gives dignity to the victim and it gives dignity to the perpetrator to do that. But confessing our sins sounds like we're letting ourselves off the hook. But my, our problem with confessing our sins is that so often we try to manage it like we manage everything else. When Typically, when people confess their sins, this is the way it works. Yes, I did that. I will, I will own that sin. Yes, I did that. But I'm not going to go so far as to confess the depth of my sin. Or I will say, yes, I did that. But I have a reason for why I sinned. It's somebody else's fault. Well, not their fault, really. But they impacted me in a way that caused me to do this, right? Now, here's the thing about confession. And and there's a difference between confession and confrontation. You can confront someone else's sin, but you can't confess it. You can't confess somebody else's sin for them. And so before we hear this and we think, well, this is just a really, this is just a really terrible thing. And that, you know, uh, confession, um, uh, you know, we, I, I don't really need to go that deep into into my confession. The, the, the fact of the matter is all human beings try to manage our confession. This uh, yesterday I was with my daughter and we were we were at a bookstore and we were looking at books and she leaned over to me and she croaked to me. She's like, Dad, do you have a copy? And and let me go ahead and alert you. This is an equal oper, equal uh, opportunity offensive time we're having here this morning. So if this what I'm about to say to you offends you, then that's that's good. I've done my job. 
she leans over to me and she says, Dad, do you have the copy of Hillary Clinton's book? And I'm like, no, sweetie, I I don't have it. She's like, I really want to read it. And I said, you know, I do too. I said, I've read some excerpts of it, and um, I have... um, uh, uh, I have some thoughts about it. She's like, oh, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> and I said, it's not what you think. I said, I think, I think it would be a wonderful book for all people to read. And she said, why? And I said, because it's an honest book. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, my experience with people when they confess failure and loss is that they own part of it and they point out other people's contribution to their failure and loss. And I said, she's like, what? And I'm like, Madeline, in my business, this is what I do. Trust me. This is what people do. And and, and in fact, sometimes I said, and so so God bless her. You know, I, I really appreciate it because she's simply being a human being. And anytime I can read somebody who's simply being a human being, I'll read that. I'm, I'm interested in that. And I said, so that's exactly what happens to us, isn't it? I said, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we will, um, and of course she begins to tell me a story about one of her roommates who, uh, her boyfriend had a half-hearted confession about something and she blamed the, the roommate and stuff like that. I said, so you're talking about what I'm talking about. It's exactly what we do, right? So the fact is, what, what happens here in this text for us is that we have this place where there can be restoration, where atonement can be made, and so that we can live with one another in this time and in this place where we sin against one another all the time. And when we see that and when we recognize that, one of the things we have to see is that atonement has to be made. That confession, we recognize it, we own it. And where appropriate, we make restitution. Now, um, and we'll come back to that in a second too. Lastly, we look at the third section here. And the third section, frankly, is the weirdest. Really weird. Uh, uh, probably, you're probably not prepared for this. Uh, I wasn't when I first read it. I I studied this book. I took tests on this book when I was in seminary, and I guess I'd forgotten about this law, this ritual. Let me. We're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I'll read enough for you to get a, a sense at the beginning and at the end, and then we'll we'll talk about what's going on here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel." If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself, Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her a tenth of an ephah barley flour. He shall pour no no oil on it, put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near 
and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water and an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water, and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord on and on and on. She's going to drink that water. Wow. Wow. Let me read the conclusion. Uh, This is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. So here's the thing. We read this and we're like, this seems so terrible, right? This this seems like one of those kinds of things where this husband in this culture where where men are are so powerful that suddenly they set the because they're just jealous of their wives, whether she's done anything wrong or not. They put her in this situation where she's going to be condemned, because what's supposed to happen here is she, he has this suspicion. Their relationship is broken. Let me tell you, this couple needs counseling. Okay, let me let me be clear about that right now. They're in a mess, right? So either either she is guilty of adultery or he suspects that she is. So what does he do? Well, culturally in this culture, if it, what he could have done is he could have just killed her. He could have just done away with her. Or he, in some of the more enlightened cultures, what he could have done with her is he could have put her through some sort of test. One of the one of the tests that I read about that was prominent and prevalent during this time was if somebody told you a lie, but you couldn't tell whether they lied or not, you take a piece of metal and you heat it up in the fire and you stick it on their tongue. And if it burned them, then they lied. Right. Or or if, if, if as, as, as some of you may have been familiar with, that if someone is uh, uh, accused of being a witch, you know, you tie a rock around them and throw them in the water. And if they sink, they're a witch. See how stupid that is? That's not what this is. What this is is the recognition that this relationship is broken. And so what is to be done is done before the Lord. And what is to be done here is she goes to the priest with him before the Lord and she drinks a little bit of this dust and this water. Uh, And if she's guilty, then she'll become infertile and sick. And if she's not guilty, nothing will happen to her. Now, That seems so crazy to us, but the fact of the matter is there's there's actually a lot of grace in this because the truth of the matter is it's taken out of the husband's hands. God is the one who's going to judge. God is the one who is going to deal with this, and God is the one who is going to uh, address this uh, situation. Now, why in this would out of all of these things, maybe we could kind of understand the uncleanness and maybe we could kind of understand what to do about people defrauding one another. But why would you spend this much time on marriage? Because marriage represented for the people God's relationship with his with his people. And they were constantly unfaithful. Bitter water would have been something that would have been very familiar to them. 
And so this this ritual that they go through here was not just a means to restore the marriage. It certainly was able to do that. But it's also a means whereby God reminds his people of what he must do to restore their unfaithfulness to him. So when I when I read this text and I and I thought about this, I thought, how humiliating, though, even for the woman that her husband would think this and that he would take her to the priest. That seems humiliating. Does it seem humiliating to you? It does to me. It seems like a terrible thing to do to your wife. But you know what? What if he's wrong? Who's humiliated now? I did this. I put you through this before the priest. And now nothing happened. So obviously I was wrong. There's a bit of humiliation in that, I think. So as we look at this, we think about this. This is such a difficult thing for us. We don't live in this culture and we don't live in this time. And it is a hard thing for us to understand. But the great thing that we have to see about this is the decision, the judgment in this case, is taken out of the hands of the husband who had the power and the authority culturally to do whatever he wanted to her. And it's placed in God's hands. And any time we place a sinner or an innocent person or anyone in God's hands, we're in a good place. So, so when we think about this and we, we look at these texts, we have to say, wow, this is, this is so odd. Well, the reason why it is so odd is because we have made peace and we are comfortable with things the way they are. We are comfortable with the fact that, you know, cleanness, uncleanness, I don't want to think about that. We're comfortable with the fact that, you know, a little bit of confession, a little bit of contrition here, it all seems uh, to work out, right? This crazy story here, just kind of, you know, I guess they drank the bitter water and whatever came of that, that was okay. And that God was able to judge between those things. But you see, what we have to see about this is, is that God is using these three things to teach his people of the necessity of atonement, the necessity of sacrifice, and the necessity that God intervenes in their sin and their death. Hebrews, uh, the writer to, to uh, the Hebrews says this in chapter 13. We have an altar, that's all of us, have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So right off the bat, all of these things that we've seen here about the, the distinctions between the people of God, because Christ has come, those of us who are in Christ now have rights and have access that the people who served in the tent did not have, right? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Of course they were burned outside the camp because how ironic, right? Even bringing in this, these animals to kill them would make you to sprinkle their blood for your atonement for your sin would have made you unclean. They had to be taken outside and burned. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We forget when we read the Gospels that uh, 
it's important for us to understand that Jesus is taken outside the city. And he is a curse, not only because he hangs on a tree, but he's cursed because he is taken outside. He is cast out. He is out with the unclean because he becomes unclean for us. So as a result of that, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, it, there, suddenly because Jesus has identified himself with the unclean, Jesus is the one who has borne that. He has set us free now. And so that city wall, that, that city that we think of ourselves as being a part of, is done away with so that we can now go outside bearing the reproach that he bore to reach all of those who are unclean. Through him, let us continually offer up a praise, a, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Jesus went outside, was taken outside the camp, literally, and sacrificed so that you could have a place inside the camp. But as a result of that, him doing that, you're set free to go out and bear the reproach that he bore to reach those who you deem unclean. Who's unclean? Well, let me put it this way. Who's the most unclean? All right, I might have a little bit of uncleanness, but I'm not that person. I'm not, I'm not the confused kind of person that uh, uh, addresses life this way. I know what's clear, and I know who's in, and I know who's out. So if you put the oppressor outside the wall, then Jesus goes to them. If you put the oppressed outside the wall, then Jesus goes to them. If you put the rich outside the wall, Zacchaeus, Jesus goes to him. If you put the poor outside the wall, Jesus goes to them. Let me read to you the words of institution. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. 